the first two minutes, we're going to go from title to topic. You might have noticed that. That the title is what the people want to hear, and the topic is what the speaker wants to talk about. <laughs> so you can probably guess from the title, what two holidays are we going to connect? I'm sure you got the title. Yeah. So we, there'll be a connection between Hanukkah and yeah, Walk Down the Street, which for some reason every year they come out pretty much the same time of year. Last year was Thanksgiving, that was like once in a blue moon. But in general it's always the same time of year, and the impression that we have is coincidental, even though they're both on the 25th, and they're both in the winter. And the question is, is there some connection between them? That's a question, that's not the purpose of this year. What I want to do in the lecture tonight is turn Hanukkah from a children's holiday to an adult holiday, and maybe even to a dynastic holiday. Uh, but a little left wing. <laughs> if I don't get in trouble. I'm going to begin like this. We're going to trace Hanukkah, the time of year of Hanukkah, from the beginning of time. From, uh, from the time of creation, through biblical times, to rabbinic times, and to modern times. So what I want to do is the source sheet as a reference sheet and we're going to start with the first event and you'll see exactly what we're beginning with this event. It's the source of why Hanukkah they take. So what I want you to do, like the New York Post, back page, has the good stuff. <laughs> so we're going to start with the source sheet too on the back, the very bottom source. A story about Adam HaRishon. It's always good to start with a fun story. I'm, I'm assuming most of you have heard this story, so we'll just summarize it. It's in a tractate called Avodazara, Idol Worship. Now, why would the Jewish Talmud have a tractate dedicated to Idol Worship as it's forbidden? Good question, right? Well, uh, well, yes, you know who not to worship. But there's a business connection to this. The first law in that tractate is, it's forbidden to make a business deal with an idol worshiper on their holidays. Because that might lead them to thank their gods for the landing to do. So to fulfill that law, what do we need to know? What are their holidays? And the next mission talks about a list of those holidays. And two of them, which we're going to discuss, one is called Kalanda, sounds like calendar. The other is called Saturna, which sounds like Saturn. And we'll see how they came about. The, the mission is going to talk about the holiday. The Gemara is going to bring a story that explains how they came about in a very interesting way. So we'll follow the mission. I'll do the Hebrew, but you can follow in the English. It's, uh, source J the back, on the back page. The very last source. Source says, These are the holidays of idol worshippers. And the Gemara talks about them. Uh, one, their names. So, Omar of Hanan Kalanda, the holiday Kalanda, is eight days after the Tkufa, Tkufa means here the winter solstice. In our calendar, that would be December 21st. Uh, before they reformed the calendar, it used to be December 25th. Um, and Saturna are the eight days prior to the winter solstice. So in our calendar, it would be, it's hard math, um, 21 minus 8, from around the 13th or 14th of December to the 21st, and then from the 21st to the 28th. Now, how did these holidays come about? Or in a nutshell, these are what we call winter solstice holidays. Tanurvana, the Rabbi Sabbath. The Tishara Adam Rishon, Yom Shemit Maik Adam Rishon, according to our tradition, was created Rosh Hashanah time, September. He sinned, remember what happened? What did he do wrong? No, you don't. Yeah, right. But why did God banish him? This is just on the side. Not for sinning, but for blaming it on his wife. <laughs> and he's taking responsibility. That it's bad enough that he sinned, but he blamed it on his spouse. So God told him, if you don't understand relationships, <laughs> and you can't have a relationship with me either, you have to go back and do some training. Now back to our ship. Other than it was already after he sinned. And it was already October, November. And what did he notice? He, started, he finished off with the time for Mimcha. The days are getting shorter and shorter. And he was also pretty good in math. And what did he realize? If this keeps on going, if the days keep on getting shorter and shorter, within another month or two, there won't be any light left. What's the meaning of all that? So, let's see. I knew a little Yiddish. He said, Omar, oily. He said, 
שמה בשלוש עשרה סלחתי עלום חשוך ועדי. Maybe it's because of my sin that now, that's why things are getting dark. וחוזר לטוב ובוא. When God said he or, what was before God created light? Tov of all, and then he was chaos. And now that God's taking away light, we're going back to the original chaos. And maybe that is what God meant when he said you're going to die. He never saw that before. So maybe death is no light. He didn't give up. He didn't say, well, that's it. Let's enjoy the last two months and say goodbye. Instead, he died. David and prayed and fasted. After eight days of fasting and davening, he looked at his watch. What did he notice? Hey, it started getting longer. If he saw the days got older, longer, Amar, what did he say? Ah, this must be nature. He was a little chassidish, so what did he do? He made a, a festival for eight days. Remember this Lashon? The next year, what did he do? The eight days that he fasted became a holiday, and Kabachomer, the eight days that he celebrated became a holiday, and he had two holidays. One later became Kalanda, the other Saturna, or Saturna then Kalanda. Now, he has in mind to do it the same Shemaim. Who Kalanda the same Shemaim? The Haim, his descendants, turned it into idol worship. Classic Midrash. Got it? What can Midrash saying? That it makes sense that mankind has a winter solstice holiday. And if you might have noticed, almost all the Jewish holidays have two components. There's something agricultural, which relates to the sun. Ask your science teacher, will explain why. But there's seasons, the seasons that um, relate to grain and fruit in the land of Israel, have to do with the sun. And all of our holidays have some seasonal component and an historical component. We have a spring holiday called Chag and we remember the Exodus. We have a grain harvest holiday, about two months later, we talk about the Torah being given. We have a fruit harvest, six months later, and we remember, understand what's going on? So don't be surprised that we're going to have something historical related to a winter solstice holiday. It's simply following the pattern. There's nothing wrong with that, because Judaism is a nation, it has a culture, but it's part of mankind. And every society, every culture has holidays. It's not if you celebrate, it's how you celebrate. And do you, uh, do you take the winter solstice and get drunk and have wild parties? Or do you take the winter solstice and light candle if you're catching on? Now, so that's our first source. And remember, it's eight days for some reason. And now we have to zoom forward a couple hundred years. One technical question. This is for people who know their astronomy. Why is it impossible to have a winter solstice on a Jewish calendar? Do you understand my question? On a solar calendar, the winter solstice is easy. December 21st in our, the way we have it. But whatever calendar you make, there's four days. There's the two equinox and the solstices. Um, why can't you do it on the Jewish calendar? Because it's lunar. Sort of. The Jewish calendar is lunar and solar. We have 12 months, but then we're short 11 days a year. How do we solve the problem? If 12 months go by and it's not spring yet, we add a month. We're familiar. Therefore, the first month in the Jewish calendar always contains the spring equinox, which means nine months later will be the winter solstice. Now, we don't know the exact date, but the winter solstice has to be either the ninth month or tenth month. There'll be a range of about, you know, ask your math professor how it works, but there's a range of about three, four weeks within which the winter solstice is always going to fall, except last year with Thanksgiving. Remember that was once in a blue moon. Um, but we can't have an exact date because it's not exact but there's a range but that's if we're talking about the shortest day of the year if we're talking about the longest night it's a different story you think that doesn't make sense isn't the shortest day the longest night? sort of well when I say the longest night I mean the darkest night if if I want a spooky winter solstice I mean a long long night sometimes the moon can get in the way because I can have a very long night, but I can have a full moon. And then it's not so dark that night. In fact, it can be light all night long. If I want the darkest nights of the year, I need some time in that between the ninth and 10th month, but I've got to make sure the moon isn't there either. 
Now, if you know your astronomy, the moon doesn't rise the same time every night. It changes 45 minutes a day. In the beginning of the month, it's small but it's getting bigger and bigger. It's out at sunset and longer and longer. By the 15th of the month, it's out all night long. By the time you get to the third week of the month, the moon is only half-sized and it only rises after midnight. And the last three, four days of the month, it rises at three in the morning and it's getting smaller and smaller. So if I'm looking for the eight darkest nights of any month, when are they? The 24th and 25th to the 2nd. Now, if the winter solstice is either in the ninth or 10th month, and the darkest time of any month is the last week of the month, if I didn't lose you, then when is the best time to put the winter solstice on the Jewish solar lunar calendar? <coughs> exactly Hanukkah. That can be by chance. The eight days of Hanukkah is, is a better winter solstice when I'm talking about the darkest night, not the shortest day. The darkest night of the year in, in our calendar is exactly that. Because if you remember when you cut out Shabbat, um, it's around the same for about a month, isn't it? About two months ago, we were zooming 10 minutes a week, and then it levels out. So all the night and 10th month, it's the same time. The night is just as long, but the darkest night is exactly that. And, and what do we find? We have the darkest time of the year on our Jewish calendar, and what do we do? For some reason, for a good reason, we're going to light candles. And I think, I mean, it's logical to, to suggest that even if it wasn't for the Hanukkah story, we might be doing something similar. I wouldn't say we do eight, maybe not eight days, but we do something to mark that time of year. Now we have to go to, we have to keep that in mind, and fast forward in Jewish history. The Jewish people are chosen, God's very upset with mankind. After 2,000 years, he picks a nation. That nation becomes a nation after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. We come out of Egypt, we get the Torah, and from that time on, when we accept God as our God, we become God's nation, we get the Torah, and we have a symbol of our connection to God called the Mishkan. You read about it. And from the time we receive the Torah that year, we go to Tabernacle, we conquer the land of Israel, we establish a nation in our land, and after a couple hundred years, we go from a Tabernacle to something more permanent called a Temple. But if you look at Jewish history, from the time that our nation began, until the end of the First Temple period, we're a people in our land, we have a nation, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller, and we have a temple. The, the destruction of the first temple is a shockwave to Jewish history. It's unprecedented. No longer, no longer a temple, and no longer a land. If you want to give just an idea, pretend you have a Jewish community, and all of a sudden, no shul. There's no such thing as a Jewish community without a synagogue, without a big Knesset. No matter what. Judaism is not a religion for just individuals. It's a community. And they've gathered. For the Jewish people not to have a temple in that context is a question the very existence of the people. And therefore, when the Jewish people go into exile at the end of the first temple period, there's a big question, is our relationship with God over? And the fact that God's house is destroyed, He allows His house to be destroyed, and His people are exiled to a different land, and there's nothing left of the land of Israel, and especially if you know your stories of the prophets of that time period who all the false prophets in God's name were saying it will never happen it can't happen it can't be because God would never forsake his people as long as he does and sure enough it happened most likely what's going to happen to the people once they're exiled those who were left they're going to give up hope <coughs> which was what most people thought for a very logical reason because if God cared about his people we wouldn't be exiled and we wouldn't have, Jerusalem would have been destroyed two prophets tried to fight that <coughs> You know, then Yemiel, Jeremiah in Jerusalem, and Yeheskel, who went with the first wave of exile. What did they tell the people? Why they're being punished? And emphasizing, if there is an exile, it's not game over, but it's rehab. Rehab is short for rehabilitation. The people don't buy it. But that's what they claim. Yemiel promised that even though you're going into rehab, don't treat this as game over. After 70 years of Babylonian sovereignty, you'll come back one day, if you're ready. Yechetzkel gives a very similar message and he gives a beautiful analogy which I'm sure you remember. It's a little cartoon in the Jewish Post, in the Jerusalem Post. Remember Dry Bones? Everyone's seen Dry Bones. Uh, you've heard of Dry Bones, of course. If you remember the analogy, what are the Dry Bones saying? 
You have Shulat Smotein. Who are the dry bones? The dry bones are the whole house of Israel. And what are they saying? Our bones are dry, meaning exile is an irreversible process like that. It's over. You're gone and that's it. And that's how they view their exile. No longer do we have a connection with God. Either there is no God, or God left us, or we'll follow the other gods now. But there is no more Jewish people. What is Yechezkel's answer? Those dry bones will come back to life. And what are they going to need? Ruach. Okay. They'll, they'll take, that'll put the pieces together, and they'll put Ruach in them, and they'll come back to life, return to their land, and become God's people again. We'll see an example if we have time. That's, that was the big hope. And that's the beginning. That's the end of the first temple period. And now we have to turn to the beginning of the second temple period, which is the story of Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah happens when in Jewish history. Everyone, anyone know the year? Approximate? Is Hanukkah first temple or second temple? It's the middle of the second temple period. It's minus 164, or 164 BCE. About a little less than 200 years before the temple was destroyed. Several hundred years after it's built. What we're going to see is the date of Hanukkah, and this time of year, is going to be a very important date in the history of the Second Temple. Not just an important date, the key date of that history, and, and, a, and a watershed date, if I understand the word right. It's going to be a date that's going to change everything. It'll be a game, it'll be a game changer. Watch what happened. The people are in Babylon exile. They've given up hope. Sure enough, just like Yermio had predicted, after seven years of Babylonian sovereignty, the Babylonians fall to the Persians. You know that from old history. And it just so happens that the first Persian conqueror, Cyrus the Great, changes policy, and he says instead of exiling people, they got people so angry with the Babylonians, he's going to be Mr. Nice Guy, he's going to grant religious autonomy to everyone, and allow every ethnic group to go back to the homeland where they were exiled from. And he's doing it for political reasons, for logical reasons, and it works. His empire is much stronger than the, than the Babylonians. What do the prophets have to say about that? Take a look at our first source. Now we go to source A. Source A on the first source sheet. Ezra chapter 1. We're reading for the book of Ezra. Just a little game I'll play. If someone asked you who built the first temple, what would you answer? Shlomo. Who built the second temple? Herod. No, Herod rebuilt it later. No, no, Cyrus allowed them to build it. But who is Ezra. Who said Ezra? Sam said Ezra. Ezra. Most people say Ezra, or sometimes Ezra Nehemiah. Now, it's very confusing. I have to clarify something. It never says anywhere that Ezra and Nehemiah built the temple. There's no source for that. Instead, it says Zerubbabel built the temple, black and white, over and over again. The story of the Torah being, of the temple being rebuilt, is recorded in the book of Ezra. Understand? But Ezra wasn't born yet. The first six chapters talk about Cyrus, the return, rebuilding the temple, with Zerubbabel, you sing about it on Hanukkah, Kate Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the Kate Shidi Moshati, we'll read that passage in a minute. The story of the return is in the book of Ezra, but the Jewish leaders at the time are Zerubbabel, the political leader, he's from Davidic descent, the great-grandson of Yehoiakim, um, of Yehoiakim, and Yoshua ben Yosadak is the Kohen Gadol. He's the chief rabbi, and hopefully he'll be running the temple if it ever gets built. The prophets are Haggai and Tzariah, who we're going to read their prophecies today. And they're going to talk about Hanukkah. That's the cap. Not till chapter 7 does Ezra come on the scene. How many years later it is? That's a five-hour lecture. That's, a com- that's complicated. That's the missing years. But it's important for us to remember that the people who come back and rebuild the temple are Zerubbabel, and Yeshua, those are the leaders. Haggai, Zechariah are the prophets. Ezra himself comes much later, but it's written in the book of Ezra. So we're going to read the book of Ezra, even though he himself wasn't born yet. So how does the book of Ezra begin? In the first year of Koresh, the first, uh, not the first Persian king, but the Persian king who conquers Babylonia, just like Yermiel predicted, the clothed by Hashem appeared Yermiel, Heir Hashem to Koresh, like one of you said, it's not Koresh's idea. Who's behind the scenes? It's not Balfour. It's not, it's not Koresh. It's, it's God behind it. And God is using history to give the Jewish people a message. That needs a, that needs a prophet to interpret. What is, what, is God, what is Koresh saying, and inspired by God to do this? God says, God gave me all these lands. 
And we'll skip right to verse 3, plus the Gimel. Anyone in the Persian Empire, that God should be with him, and he should go to Yerushalayim, anyone who wants and is encouraged, in the area of Judah. Any Jew anywhere in the Persian Empire is encouraged by the Persian authorities to go build God's house in Jerusalem. And Dr. Gallagher, he never saw this, the coldest thing. Anyone remaining who doesn't make Aliyah, what should he do? Yinasu and Shema Kamo, the Kesib, the Zahav, that, that, that. The first UJA. Anyone who's not coming should send a donation and feel guilty and the rest get familiar with. 3,000 years ago. Now, what should happen when he returns? Some people return. Several thousand come back. There's a list of them in chapter 2 in the book of Ezra. What should happen? This is redemption. Now, if you want a great set of prophecies about how the Jewish people were encouraged in Babel to get out of Babel and return, and God still wants them, just read Isaiah chapter 40 to 50, mid-50s, you'll see it black and white. And that's why we read it uh, the same time after the temple is destroyed, the seven half Torah after Tishavah. That's the detail. In, in that section, chapters 44 and 45, the Nebi says, Koresh is my shepherd. I'm the one who brought Koresh in. It's because the me Koresh was successful. And I'm the one telling you ahead of time. And in telling my people, you're chosen, I didn't abandon you. But Chaticha Domasticha. Because the people are saying, God left us. The Nabi is saying, no, God wants you back. You were in rehab, but it wasn't game over. Those who do return are expecting the beginning of our redemption. They get to Jerusalem, they build a little altar that takes a couple of days. And they start building the temple. As soon as they start building, we have the first intifada. And that's going to be source B. The enemies, or the local population in Yerushalayim, in the meantime, the Jews had left, the Babylonians and the Assyrians brought other people in beforehand. And therefore, we're now a minority in Jerusalem. And even though we have a permit from Persia to build, you have to deal now with the local population. And that Persia is far away. And a local governor and the local troublemakers, you know, who cares about all these... Uh, permits you have, they can stop it. So they came to an argument, they want Jerusalem to be an international city. Zerubbabel says, no, this is only a Jewish project. And in verse 4 of the Dalit, the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Yudah, and they scared them to build in. Verse 5, they hired lobbyists, sending letters to the Persian authorities. They're detailed later in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Ezra telling the Persian authorities, don't you dare give a permit to these Jews to build that temple because you can't trust them. They're going to rebel just like they did to Nebuchadnezzar, just like they did to Ashur. You can't give them the finger, they'll take a hand. Don't trust them. The right-wingers will take over in no time and they're not going to accept just autonomy. They're going to want freedom. They're going to want their own army and they're going to take you over. And for 18 years, there's a building freeze. If they get an injunction against the building permit, in the meantime, the authority, the, the uh, administration in Persia changes. Koresh dies, Tavadav takes over. And for the next 18 years, a building freeze. And this is key to understand Hanukkah, today. From when? Kodim et Koresh, the end of verse 5, there's a building freeze from the reign of Koresh all the way till the reign of Daryadash. You can do a calculation, it's 18 years. For Ashir, 20 years later. Two decades later, nothing's happening. Pretend you were one of the, those foolish people who made Aliyah, who went there. How would you feel? First, down in the press, betrayed. You, as far as hope goes, what a mistake. Now, did God really say it's time to return? One of his rabbis were saying, you know what? This is the hand of God behind it. If it's so obvious that this is a redemption, we're not sovereign, only small group come. Is the seven years really over? Is there really a chance of return? There's a lot of question marks. What's the sign that this isn't redemption? The fact that it's not working. There's no better sign that God doesn't want you than not, not being able to build the temple. Why is it if it was the hand of God behind course allowing us to build, it's the hand of God behind the local population saying don't build. And that's going to take us to the first line of the book of Haggai. Haggai begins his prophecy in the second year of King Darius. Remember, the prophet in the time of Koresh is what we call Deuteronomy Isaiah. The prophet now in Israel, after they return, is going to be Haggai. Haggai and Haggai begin the prophecies 
18 years after the return because there's the new administration in, in Persia. I'll joke around, I'll get in trouble, the Republicans are back in. <laughs> and the building freeze is over. Got it? The question is, is it too late? Let's see what the people have to say. Haggai, source Sina. Haggai the prophet, who's the prophet of the return of Bait Shemi, in the second year of Dayavesh, the date is Rosh Chodesh Elul, that's not by chance. Rosh Chodesh Elul is the time of no, returning. God gives the Nebuah to Haggai and directed to the two leaders of the Jewish people at the time, Zerubbabel, the governor, hopefully one day a king, and Yeshua, the chief rabbi. Pasuk said, verse 2, This is what God is telling the Nabi about the people. Ha'amazeh, this nation that I'm sending you to inspire them, what are the people saying? Ha'amazeh amru, lo eit bo et beit Hashem The people are saying, it's over. This isn't time to build. Understand? What leads into that conclusion? Look at reality. There's something I have to add, which we'll see later between the lines. Not only are they not able to build the temple, the economy is in shambles. No one can make a living. There's been a drought for years. Nothing's growing. They can't make a living at all. And that's another sign that God doesn't want them. Because God said, if you, we'll see later in Yechazkel, God says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bless the land. The land's going to give its produce again. And it's not happening. And therefore, the people, for both political reasons and economic reasons, are saying God doesn't want us back. Guess what the prophet's going to say? When they say, Pumpaker, means exactly the opposite. The reason why there's a drought, and the reason why nothing's growing, and the reason why you're unsuccessful politically, is because you're not trying hard enough. You're misinterpreting the data. You think God doesn't want you. No, God wants you. You're not trying hard enough. And therefore, he tells him in verse 7, Pay attention to your ways. Get to work. Somebody does a lumber, get yourself an architect, take out a couple loans, get some foreign workers, and get to work. Now, Chagai has a colleague. His colleague's name is Zechariah. And in the same year, in the same month, pretty much, give or take a month or two, he gives a similar prophecy which is the Haftara for, Shabbat, for this week, for Hanukkah, also for Balotzah. Now, I'm sure you remember the Haftara for Hanukkah, and everyone thinks it's the Haftara because there's a vision of a menorah. Oh, menorah looks like Hanukkah, lights, candles, okay, what a good Haftara. You'll see in the shirt tonight exactly why the rabbis chose that Haftara. It's not just because there's a menorah in it. The whole message of Hanukkah is the Haftara, which is going to be the rest of the shirt. The message of Zechariah's vision is going to be the key point. What he sees is the meaning of it. It's very important for us today because that vision of the candelabra, of the Noah that Zechariah sees, has become the symbol of the state of Israel. You might have been to the Knesset, you might have looked on coins, and there's that menorah with olive branches on top. The, that description or the, the uh, imagery of that menorah is based on Zechariah's Nebuah. And soon we'll see why it's such a meaningful symbol for the state of Israel, what the state of Israel should be. Ischayim begins as follows. Be happy. What can we imply? Tell someone, cheer up. What can you imply? They're down, they're depressed. Why? Why should you cheer up? Don't worry, I'm coming back. You're right, I left you. I'm gone. I want to come back. I'm willing to come back. But you have to do your side. Now we'll go back to Chagai. We'll go back to Ischayim later on. Let's go back to Chagai. Haggai's opening prophecy was on Rosh Chodesh Elul. Six weeks later, it's Sukkot time. There's no temple yet, but they're bringing sacrifices. Kevin is there. And it's Hoshana Rabbah, which is the last day of Sukkot. Erev Sukkot Torah. Everyone's in Jerusalem, and guess what the rabbi does? Time to get a drasha. What do the people need? In fancy English, or Yeshivish English, it's called Chizik. You've heard of that word? Someone needs Chizik? Listen to what he says. Look in Pasek Dalit. First he tells him, who remembers the good old days? Any, any old timer who remembers what the old show used to look like. And you see what they're building now? What a joke. And of course, they, they don't accept it. It can't be. They need some encouragement. So look in Pasek Dalet. Vata chazak zubada. He needs chizuk. Vechazak Yahshua. Got it? The chief rabbi needs chizuk. Vechazak kola amahar. Numashem. Why? Kani itchem numashem. I'm with you. That's right, God's with you. We have all through Chumash. Yaakov is running away from home. 
He's worried what's God have to promise him. In in um, Lavan is about to kill him because he's ripping him off the business. And Yaakov turns to God and what God tell him? Go home and I'll be with you. Remember? Go back home and then I'll be with you. Gidon wants to know before he goes to battle, was God with him? He needs a sign. The idea that God being with you is key. God has to tell the people it's worth taking that risk of building because I'm with you. Don't think I left you. I am with you. You have to try harder. And then he promises them in the Rishon. This temple which right now is a big joke can become greater than the first one. And this place God's glory can return. It's not there yet, but there's hope. What day was that? That was... What day was that? Hoshana Ramah. The Oki Day Son of Calendar. Haggai has one more prophecy. It's a very short book, two chapters. And it's easy Hebrew. Haggai has one more prophecy left, and he's going to give it on the day that they break ground. Between the last day of Sukkot and Hanukkah, it's about two months, they start raising money. They get the architect finally, they get the plans, they raise money, and they have enough money not to build, a bo- not to build but rather they have enough money to have a groundbreaking ceremony. Who's from Lincoln Square? Someone here is from Lincoln Square? <laughs> you have enough money to start the building. So what do you do? You can't wait to have all the funding. What do you do first? You have enough money to have a groundbreaking ceremony. Once I go ground up, it's almost done, let's finish it. It, it works all the time. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, double the interest. But you have the idea, you'll see why. Later in Ezra, we're going to find out, it takes four years to build it. They start construction in the second year of Darius, they finish it in the sixth year. They're going to start with a groundbreaking ceremony. And what day did they pick to have the groundbreaking ceremony? What we would call Hanukkah. Take a look at the date. It's verse 10. This is the third and final Nebuah and the, the most powerful of all of Haggai's Nebuah. It's the 24th day of the ninth month, which is Arab Hanukkah. And you should realize something. We light our candles. No, if you take the classic Hanukkah story, the children's one, where they rested on the 25th and they found that little thing of oil and they lit the menorah, what would be the first candle of Hanukkah? It would be the 26th, wouldn't it be? Because you light the menorah in the evening for the next morning. So we really, when we light the candles on the 25th and the evening of the 25th, we're really celebrating the 24th. And that's what this Nebuah is. On the 24th of Kislev, in the second year of Dalyavish, about four months after he started his campaign or crusade to get things started, they're ready to break ground. And Haggai gives this Nebuah. Was it skip right to verse, to verse 15? He says, pay attention to this day, the day right before they start putting brick on top of brick in God's house. Either we're about to start this day or the next day. And he tells him, he continues in verse 18, pay attention to this day, again, from the 24th of his slave, from the day that God, that the foundation of God's house is being set, pay attention. And he tells him, look at your GNP. I think I have it right. The gross national product. Look at your produce. Look at your economy. Up until this year, it's been a disaster. I promise you, you get to work on this temple and the market's going to climb. Things will grow again. Market date, because what time of year is it in Israel now? Is anything growing? No. Last year's season is over. In fact, most of the fruit season is over in September. That's why it's Hagasi, your fruit gathering holiday. The last of the crops of the seven species are the olives. And the olives finish in October. That's the end of their... Uh, but what do, what do we do with the olives after we gather them? We put them in a basket and we press them. I'm sure if you've been on two in Israel, you see those Asian olive presses. And you press them for about a month. And Hanukkah is the end of the end of the olive season. Rabbi Yolvenun has a beautiful article in the Gadim where he talks about that the original holiday, he calls it Chag Asif HaShemen. There was probably a holiday, circus time, where they collected the oil. And his source is the laws of Bikurim, of the first fruits. You can bring all the way until Hanukkah. Like Hanukkah. But there's something agricultural about Hanukkah. There's ideally, you should bring him by circus time. And that's when he stayed, you know, the whole, um, not benediction, the whole proclamation of Aramia Vedavim. But the mission says you can even bring him to Hanukkah. Because that's the end of the end of the season. So Haggai picks that day for breaking ground on the temple and promises the people, continue working on this temple, get moving, and you're going to see an improvement on your economy. And don't interpret the drought because God doesn't want you here. Interpret the drought because you're not working hard enough. 
work better and things will get better. That's his promise. That's one promise. What's his next promise? In verse 20, he speaks again. He gets the podium a second time. Chagai. It's the same ceremony. In verse 20, we're in Chagai and we're still in E. Potakas. And another prophecy on the 24th of Kislev. Because go tell Zerubbabel, I'm going to cause an earthquake. Now, he's going to talk here very cryptically. I'll explain, I'll explain why in a minute. Go tell Zerubbabel, your political leader, there's going to be an earthquake. Not a, ge- uh, not a geological one, but rather a political one. Or military one. Verse 22. I'm going to overturn big governments. I'm going to destroy big armies. Chariots are going to fall one on top of the other. And what's going to happen at the end of all this? On that day, what's God say? I'm going to take you, Zerubbabel, and I'm going to make you the signer of my documents. I'm, you're going to be the one with the signing the things, which is a nice way of saying you're going to be king. Why can't he publicly say Zerubbabel's going to become king? Yes, no, your book of Ezra. Of all the letters going back and forth, what's the local population telling them? Don't trust these Jews. Isn't? They won't be happy with religious autonomy. They're going to start up and they're going to want to be sovereign again. And they're going to rebel. You can't publicly say we want to be sovereign again. But the Nabi stated in a cryptic way. I think that's why, it's, that's why it's not explicitly sovereignty, but it's clear he's talking about sovereignty. You can see it in the context. Don't give up hope to the fact that you've returned and you're in a Persian rule. One day it's going to be gone and you'll become sovereign again. Just give it some time. And that's Haggai. Got it? Haggai is promising economic prosperity and return to sovereignty. On what condition? You build the temple. Now, I want to add something, which is a theory of mine. I'm not sure if it's true. I'm looking for a source. It has to do with day-to-day davening or benching. We know what benching is, don't we? There's the first three blessings of benching are, are Yolaika. Um, the first Bakal Yenaki benching is about Hazanat Akol. Does that make sense? Of course. It's related. The second benching, Allah Arts Amazon, on the land. The first two blessings of Birchat Amazon, the grace after the meals, makes a lot of sense. They relate to, to food and thanking God for food. What's the third blessing about? Okay. Jerusalem, right? So it's very nice. You know, we don't want to forget Jerusalem. We remember it every time we go. But shouldn't there be a connection between food and Jerusalem if it's a benching? Well, according to Haggai, there is. What's Haggai saying? Haggai's saying, the reason why the land is not giving its fruit is because you guys don't care about the temple. Get to work on the temple, and your produce will grow again. Now, for homework, I want you to read the whole book of Haggai. It will take you maybe ten minutes. And he says it over and over again. I, all the speaking I skip is, what, is that what he talks about. He says, it's because of you and, and your lack of care of the house, and everyone caring about their own homes, but not God's house, that's why there's been a drought. And he promises them, get to work on the temple and things will grow. So we see from the book of Haggai that God says there's a correlation between one's desire to rebuild Yerushalayim and the produce of the land. Yechezkel said the same thing 50-60 years earlier about what will happen when they come back. And when you come back, the land will give its fruit again. If we have a chance, we'll take a look at those Pesukim. So if that's true, then it makes sense why we're going to talk about rebuilding Yerushalayim and its connection to the produce, especially if those brought from the time of Ezra from the beginning of Aishanias, works nicely. Now, let's return to our topic. And we have to get to Haggai's menorah. I mean Haggai's menorah. Haggai's uh, vision of return to prosperity and sovereignty. And his colleague, Karya, who's a little more, um, I wouldn't say more religious, but um, uh, more Haredi. You'll see what I mean in a minute. Uh, for the sake of analogy, Haggai has a kippah surah. He has a little kippah, and Chayo has a kippah shorah. It's very nice to encourage the people, build a temple, return to God, care, and what do you get? What's your prize? You get to be wealthy again. You get to have prosperity again. You can make a living. And you get to have nationhood. You get to have your own government. You can make your own mistakes. Now, Sicharia has a lot of prophecies. This first one is, um, no, Shuba Lechem, if you know that one, return to me, I'll return to you. And don't repeat the mistakes of your parents' generation. I'll just summarize what Zechariah is saying in a nutshell because he's basically repeating and continuing the prophecies of Yirmiyahu and Yechazkel. The entire reason why God sent the Jewish people into rehab wasn't because they weren't worshipping God in the temple, it was because they were worshipping God in the temple. They were calling themselves God's people, they were praying to God, and they were doing all the rituals, but, the, but their society was corrupt. 
there, there was a lack of social justice. Everything Gimriel talks about, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar. The people didn't get the message. And God warns them over and over again. And God says, it's because you're turning to me in prayer, and you claim to be my people, but you do such a poor job of representing me, I have to teach you the hard way. And I have, to, I have to take away the temple because it's doing more harm than good. But I'm sending you again to Rehab. One day you'll come back, you'll get it right. But the purpose of the exile is to improve your behavior. Now God's bringing them back. Is the whole purpose of returning just to be sovereign again and to have prosperity again? There's no point in return if we don't fix the reasons why we were sent out in the first place. That's the Chari black and white. If you have ten more minutes, read the Chari. Again, tonight we only have time for the summary. But you can read these, these things on your own. I'm not making it up as own side. Zechari has a set of visions. In fact, what we say in Shmon Esrei, is what promises, God is going to bring Shekhinah back. He says, I'm going to shout to you, I'm going to return to Yerushalayim Barachamim, B'ti Yibaneba, that's why the word Barachamim is there. Etzimach Tevin Abdechat Tatzmiach is also, from Yirmiyam, Tzchariah, and Yechezka, that God will bring Tzemach, it's going to be enough, so I'm going to bring my Ezzet, Tzemach is going to come. Tzemach is a descendant of the very who is doing Tzedek Ubishpat, doing justice and righteousness. What Tzchari is talking about is, it's important to return, but you have to return and fix the mistakes from, from your parents' generation. You have to internalize their, why you went into rehab and do it right this time. Now, if you go back to, I'm sorry, we're going to go back to Zechariah in a minute to F. Go ahead to um, the next page that I call G. In G, first I have a timeline which you can use for reference later on. The seven years of Yermiel, which we didn't have time to go into because that was too complicated. I just have, uh, for background information, is what's happening from the end of the first temple period to the beginning of the second temple period. What happens in between? Uh, the seven years of Babel that Yirmiyahu talked about begin in the fourth year of Yehoiakim. <laughs> seven years later, Yehoiakim is exiled because he rebels against Babel and doesn't accept him. Tzidkiah is put the power to be a vassal king. Four years later, he rebelled. They go into exile. The temple is destroyed. Okay. What's really interesting, Yechezkel, the last nine chapters, has a vision of the temple. If you do your math, it's exactly 50 years since Yoshiel found the Sefer Torah, which was a Yobel year. Or in a nutshell, Yechezkel's final vision is on the first Yobel in exile without a temple. It's on, it's on Yom Kippur in the 50th year since Yoshiel's big reform. And it's the first time in Jewish history that there's a Yobel and we don't have a temple and we don't have a land. Isn't that depressing? If you were living then? It's 14 years after they went into exile. Everyone who's in exile, most of them, were probably at the last Yobel, or little kids then, or they remember it. And now, for the first time in Jewish history, there's a Yoga, no temple, no land. How depressing. What did Chesko see? Nine chapters of details of rebuilding the house. But that's why the dates there are so important. Why, why did I bring that in? Because the people in exile were depressed and down, and they think it's over. And they have to emphasize over and over again, it's not over. You have to go and learn from your mistakes and do better next time. Seven years later, the Cyrus decree, they return. But 18 years, the building freeze. And then they break ground on the second temple on the 24th of Kislev, we just read. And four years later, they're going to finish that's chapter 6 in the book of Ezra. That's a reference in case you want to learn later on your own. Now, both Yirmiyahu and Yechezkel are around at the time of destruction. Yirmiyahu had the vision of return, which makes a lot of sense. God's going to give you an opportunity to return, but if you don't do Shuba first, why bring you back? Therefore, he demands the people to repent, and then God will bring you back. And that's the source one, which we, you can read later on your own. Yechezkel has a different vision of return. He says, even if you're not ready, mm-hmm. it's, a dis- it's a desecration of God's name, the very existence of God's people outside the land. And for the sake of God's name, okay, Loda Manchemaniyot says, I'm not going to do it for your sake, but for my sake I'm doing it, even though you're not deserving. I'll bring you back even if you're not ready. But when I bring you back, what do you need to do? Clean up. Clean your act together. That's what Tzai is going to talk about. Um, I'll put Bezrata Echemayim Torim. And then I'll give you a late Chadash. Look in Pasek Habab, verse 26. I'll give you a new heart. Beruach Hadasha. Remember that word. The next chapter in Yechezkel is dry bones. Where the Ruach is going to bring them back to life. And part, verse 27. And you'll follow my mitzvot. And then you'll be in the land. And I'll be your God. You'll be my people. You follow? You'll see why I brought that in a minute. 
What did Cheskel say? Even if you're not ready, I'll bring you back anyhow. But then it's your job, and now it's incumbent upon you, to fix up and clean up your ways. In light of that, pun intended, Zechariah has a set of prophecies, a set of visions. If you count them up, there's seven. The middle of the seven, the, the fourth vision, will be that of the Menorah, the famous one we're going to read, Shabbat Hanukkah. It began with, Be happy. Don't be depressed. And then, then, then there's a vision to Yeshua the Kohen Gadol to get, clean up your act. You have, uh, full of, you have dirty clothing and clean them up. And basically take the uh, institution of the Levites and the Kohanim. Judge my people, teach the Torah, take care of the temple, do your job properly and make up for your, for your bad ways. And then the fourth one is his vision of the menorah which he doesn't understand. The menorah with the, with the olive branches on top and the oil inside, the whole thing. So now go, go back to Sorteh, which is the last line of the Torah. He has his vision of the menorah, he sees the menorah with seven uh, branches. And what's the meaning of it? So in chapter, in source F, Zechariah chapter 4, let's just go right to verse 6. What does it say? Bayan more. This is the meaning of the menorah. This is God's word to Zerubbabel. Listen carefully. You took the whole share for this line. What is Chaya saying? In light of Yechazkel Nimriel, which we saw, and he's a, he's, a, he's a student of both. If we had time, I'd show you. You can prove it. He's quoting them left and right. What Chagai is saying is wonderful. That if you build a temple, God will respond by improving your prosperity and you'll return to sovereignty, which is wonderful. But that's not enough. Lobachayab, Lobachok doesn't mean not with, but not only with. It's not only about a return to Chayo means like Eshet Chayo. Like Kochi Vatsamiyari Asali Tachaylaze, a chayo is a lot of anything. A chayo is an abundance. A multitasking person is a either gibor chayo or nishet chayo. But someone who does a lot, it doesn't mean valor. But she might be a woman of valor, but that's not what chayo means. Chayo means a lot. Yeah. Now, chayo here refers to a lot of prosperity, which Chagai was promising. He said it's not only about chayo. It's not only about koach, it's not only about power, military strength, but what's more important? Ruchi. What ruach is he talking about? That's that's Yechazkel, the nutshell. That's the dry bones that need ruach. That's the tshuva you have to do even... What's the situation? They've returned and they weren't ready. And they're not, they're not ready for their job. The job of the Devim now is encouraged not just to build what Sahih is saying. Remember also, the goal is not just to return to prosperity. That's not the main motivation. That might be the buy-in to get you started again, but once you start up again, you have to be God's people, you have to, you have to be like other nations. And what's a great symbol, you have to be like other nations? And the menorah. And we take something physical and make it something spiritual, but you can, every, every Hanukkah word, everyone knows them, Kinemi Sabah Torah Or, every, every Havdalah, the NCSY session, the idea of finding spiritual meaning in life, in lighting a candle, that's, that's classic. And therefore, it's highest vision of a menorah is, is right on the mark. And that idea that a return to sovereignty and, and prosperity and nationhood is, is a vehicle towards something greater. To have, to have a vision, to be like other nations, you couldn't have a better symbol for the return of the Jewish people to the state of Israel today. And that's why the menorah outside the Knesset is such a wonderful symbol. They should take a look at it every once in a while. Now, that was, we're still 200 years before Hanukkah. And I think our time is almost up. Yeah, okay. Five more minutes? Sure. We're 200 years before Hanukkah. We broke down on the temple. We're good? They finished the job four years later. What should happen? <laughs> this, should be, this should be the goal of Ami social return. What doesn't happen? Everyone knows. There's a nation scattered in 127 Medinot. The rest is Rizvigilat Esther. God's not a happy deity, is he? Yeah. We're saved at the last minute, but that's, I think we might have done that topic before. This is the background for the time period of Rizvigilat Esther, but without going into that. I'm just bringing it down because, unfortunately, they don't answer the call. It's very partial. It's not a total failure, but it's far from the idea what God was hoping for. Prosperity 
decent, not the greatest, but nothing great. Sovereignty, not a chance. Ezra comes X amount of years later. In chapter 6, what does he find? Intermarriage. Nothing. No one, it's a disaster. He can't teach him Olivet even. He wants to teach Torah, and the guys tell him, Ezra, you're wasting your time. They're not even Jewish. The kids aren't Jewish. And he has to, he has to fight intermarriage. He's got, to, he's got to start from scratch. Sovereignty, not on anyone's radar. This basic religion, Ezra has to start the religion from scratch pretty much. If you know your contemporary of Ezra. Nehemiah comes and tilts up the walls of the city which were dilapidated. Ezra and Nehemiah helped to recover a little bit, but we're so far from Chayah's vision and Haggai's, when Mashiach comes? Well, first it's finally fall after a hundred years or so. The Greeks take over, Alexander the Great. We're minus 332 now. The Greeks take over, they're a little too good. And Hellenism catches on like... Like, like, like Hellenism. <laughs> and all of a sudden, most of the Jewish people would rather be Hellenists than Jewish people. And everyone knows, and, and then the Greeks make the biggest mistake. With the encouraged by the Hellenists, but they tell them, they tell the Jews, you're not allowed to learn Torah. You're not allowed to keep Shabbat. Now, tell a Jew you have to, yeah. tell a Jew you can't, that starts the rebellion. That was the biggest mistake they made. Everyone knows the story of Hanukkah, now the rebellion, there's three years of uh, those decrees, and the rebellion you know, works, and nationalism starts, and we get its whole army, and after three years, we go back and rededicate the temple. Now, in the book of Maccabees, which is source K, which is our next source, we have the story of that, of that victory, without reading the whole thing. What's interesting is, two little details. When they come in and clean, and clean up the temple, and from other sources we find out that they finished the battles about a month or two before Hanukkah, in the end of uh, Cheshvan, in Megillah Tanit, we have the state. When they come in, they don't just find the menorah, they make a new altar, incense altar, and a birth offering also. They break a new shulchan, a new uh, table for the showbread. Everything for new. New walls, the whole thing. The focus of the return is on the altar. The Mizbech Olam. Why? Because three years earlier, when the Hellenists took over the temple and made it a Greek temple, they picked Hanukkah to defile the temple. Three years earlier, on Hanukkah, they defiled the temple. And therefore, Yudah Maccabina, when they come in and clean up the temple, even though they came earlier, they get everything new and they purposely pick Hanukkah now to rededicate the temple. What does that show? It's been an important date since way back. A, because of what happened in time of Haggai and in time of Haggai because it's so meaningful to give a vision of hope. I want to go back to Haggai for a minute. Why break ground on the 24th of Kisai? I hope it was clear before. He picked it in on purpose not because they're ready to build. It's a significant date because what's Haggai's message? No matter how bad things are, no matter how down you are, no matter how depressing things are, there's light at the end of the tunnel. So the darkest time of the year, right before it starts getting night again, that's exactly the Midrash of Adam HaRishon. It's such a beautiful time to have a groundbreaking ceremony, even though you don't have enough money to build. But now I have a message to raise money. There's hope, look, it's getting lighter. It's like Rosh Chodesh, a new start. That day was important in the time of the Hashmonaim as well, by the Hellenists and the Hashmonaim. But what's missing in the story of Sefer Makavim, that by what we just read was 54, uh, verse 54. No, on 52, they, on the 25th day of Kisleif, they make the Chanukah Tamizbeach. On the same Mizbeach, the was rebuilt. And at the same time that it was profaned by the heathen, when the Greeks profaned the temple, on that day they rededicated it, and they did it for eight days, and they don't explain why eight days. But Chanukah Tamizbeach was eight days. Remember Yom HaShmini? Sukkis is eight days. If you have an eight-day celebration, or a seven-day celebration, neither one, they always make sense. Now, and then Judah decides this should be a holiday, a national holiday, all through the second temple period. Because this was, what did they see? They fulfilled the prophecies of Haggai. It took 200 years. But, of course we're going to do it on Hanukkah. The whole message of Haggai was on Hanukkah, that we're going to return to sovereignty. And we do it beautifully. And I have a good enough reason to celebrate Hanukkah without the miracle of the menorah, don't we? And, of course, all the, all the academics, academics, whatever they're called, um, take the book of Maccabees as a very um, reliable source. And what do they prove from there? Yeah. The miracle of the menorah, the rabbis made it up. I'm sure you've heard that before. It's you know, a little kid thing. Yeah. Now, which bothers a lot of people. What's interesting, in the next source, in the time of Josephus, 
who's living about almost 200 years later after the temple is destroyed and he's there for the destruction. He was one of the re- people who rebelled and then he turned left wing and got a job as a historian, if you know. He was a general in the army. He was a coin in the temple. He knew his stuff. And he got a good job. And thanks to him, we know a lot. Uh, he's writing about the story of Hanukkah based on Sefer Maccabee. And then he notes at the end, the last couple lines, he says, and ever since then we've been celebrating this holiday, even after the destruction. And what do we call the holiday? Light. He says, he's not sure why, but he's Jewish, he has to give a spa, he has to give a, a reason. He says, most likely because, I suppose the reason was, because the liberty beyond our hopes appeared to us. Meaning? He says, lighting candles this time of year is a sign of hope. Then maybe we'll get back and get things right one day. Where does it, where does it, Menorah come in? What, what's behind, why are the rabbis all of a sudden putting the whole focus of the holiday from the Alanistim, which is, doesn't mention the miracle of the Norida, which is just a military victory, that we say in Daphne, to lighting of the Menorah. Why is it so important? If you know the history of the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans, they were okay for the first couple decades. Yud and his family are okay, Yochanan, I mean, they don't survive very long because they die in battle, they get assassinated. John Hokunis, the next generation, he's pretty decent. His kid, Yamai, the Stukim over here. They're, uh, what are it, Stukim, Sebusis? I forgot what they're called. They're, they're what's called after there. And their kids are ready, this is civil war. Within a hundred years, in comes Pompey. And there goes all those great years of the Hash. There were great years of the Hashmonai, but it's finished. Within a, a great revolt, we lose the temple. During the time of the Hasmoneans, Hanukkah is a big national holiday. It's like Yerushalayim, Yematzot. No, this is a big deal. And it's an important holiday. And there's a whole set of holidays called Begilat Tanit mm-hmm. that we talk about all these holidays. All these national holidays, and there was one almost every month, were all nullified with the destruction of the temple for a very good reason. What's there to celebrate? Two remain, Hanukkah and Purim. And when the Gemara talks about the question of my Hanukkah, that's on the back page now. So the Gemara asks the question, why keep Hanukkah? The most logical explanation is, not why did Hanukkah begin? What's the reason for Hanukkah in the first place? But rather, why do we continue to celebrate Hanukkah even after the Qurban? And then we bring the story of the miracle of the menorah. Now, unlike the song of the Maccabees, the Gemara is very different. In the Maccabees song, they found a little thing of oil, they lit the menorah, and it lasted eight days. That's what you kill your little kids. The Gemara doesn't say that. The Gemara says something different. They found a little container of oil, which had enough oil for one day. And from that container of oil, they lit the menorah, which means they take the little container of oil and fill up all the candles. It was an oil menorah. They lit it. But the commandment in Chumash is, you light the menorah from evening to morning. What do you do in the morning? You extinguish whatever's left. You clean up the wicks. You fill it up with oil again. Leave it unlit during the day. And in the evening, you come back in and you light it. And the mission is to light the menorah, not for it to be lit. So the menorah didn't, lit, didn't stay lit for eight days. If they did that, they wouldn't, they wouldn't fulfill the mitzvah. But rather, on the next day they came to light the menorah, and they come back to that little container of oil, and guess what? There's still oil inside. And they filled it up again. And the next night, what happened? Hey, the miracle was in the pach. Now let's read it in the Gemara inside. Remember it says, My Hanukkah? See in the middle there where the star is? Source H. I'll do the Hebrew, but it's easy. My Hanukkah, and, and then we quote the, from the Gilat Tanit, that on the 25th of Kislev, the eight days of Hanukkah, you're not allowed to do Hespedim. You can't, like basically, you can't say Kafnuk. Or you can't do eulogies, and you don't fast. Those are national holidays. And then we tell the story when the Greeks came into the temple, when they defiled the temple, all the oil was ruined, and when the Hasmonaim won the battle, they checked looking for kosher oil, and they found one container of oil that had Hashgacha, that had Hafkeh. Uh, which had Munach Mikotomashu Kwangadom. Vulohaya Bo. Bo means in it, in the Pach. Pach is Zahar. Ela Lavik Yomachad. Nasen Bones. The miracle was in what? In the Pach, not in the menorah. In the Pach. Vizliko Mimeno. Mimeno means from the Pach for eight days. Is that clear? That's in the old. Oh, I'm sorry. Look at the end. The Shana Acheret. What happened the next year? Kaboom, and they made. Eight day holiday. Isn't this the same thing like the first Midrash we learned with Adam Arishon? It's very similar. It's the same, same style of writing as well. Now, how many people would know about that miracle? 
But the, the military victory, everyone knows about. They're living it. It's the front page of the Times. The miracle of the menorah, how many people would know about it? In the Sunday Times religion section, feature article, rumors in the temple. It wasn't a public miracle. So one or two call in, and that little kid who came in at night and sold it up? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> you understand my point? Yeah. It, it's not a miracle. It's not a reason for a holiday. It's not that everyone knows about it. But something happened. Something miraculous happened with the menorah. Is, is, it, is it a midrash? Is it true? It's, in my opinion, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to celebrating a holiday. The rabbis put the whole emphasis afterwards on this Hashem and one. Let's say there's a miracle with the menorah. What's God telling us? That's not the reason for a holiday. That's not the siba. It's what's called a siman. That's a sign. If the Hashemites see themselves as fulfilling the prophecies of Haggai, to return to prosperity and, and sovereignty, which is wonderful, they failed, didn't they? What does God have to remind them and us? But, but who did they forget? Zechariah. What was Zechariah's message? And the vision of the menorah? If we're going to have a miracle, whether it's a miracle, however it happened, however it's brought in, by putting the emphasis on the miracle of the menorah, if you know the prophetic background, God is screaming, or the rabbis are screaming, don't forget Zechariah. And if I'm going to celebrate Hanukkah even after the destruction, if this is going to be a national holiday, even though there's nothing to celebrate, it's no longer a holiday, a national holiday of, oh, our great military victories. It becomes now a holiday of hope. The same thing it was before Hanukkah, before the military, before the Hashemunim came on the scene. Because from the beginning of Ayat it was a time of hope. That's why they broke ground that time of year. And of course, a winter solstice is a time of hope. And what do you do as a sign of hope? You light candles. Why emphasize the menorah behind it and why read that Torah on Shabbos Hanukkah? Because if we're going to return one day to sovereignty, let's say God does a miracle and after a couple thousand years we actually return to sovereignty and prosperity and we have nationhood again and we have our own army. Imagine a miracle like that. But what's the danger again? That we're going to only remember Haggai and forget Tzchariah. Therefore, remembering when we, when we celebrate our military victory and remember the days of the past, how great things were, we have to remember what went wrong. And by putting the focus of the holiday on the menorah, in light of, pun intended, Chariah. And the message was Chariah. And the whole background this guy is talking about, and how we complement Chagad. And we have both messages, called religious Zionism, where there's a value to a state in nationhood and prosperity. And they can become vehicles in serving God. If the whole goal is only prosperity again, and nationhood, without being a light to other nations, we missed our goal. And therefore, it's important to celebrate, it's important in dark times of history, and even in good times of history, to remember goals when you can't fulfill them. But the way you remember them is in a significant one. And to take that message of realizing there's a value in nationhood, there's a value in being a people, but remembering that when you become that nation, you have to be a light, and act in a way that you become a light to other nations, there can be a more meaningful message, especially nowadays, for, for a holiday to celebrate this time of year. The... Um, Again, my point is that what happened historically is irrelevant to the way it's celebrated. Because that point, whether, no matter how the miracle of the menorah happened, or how when it happened, or what day it happened, that's irrelevant. The rabbi putting the focus of the holiday on this Shemen is the key point of the holiday, in light of menorah. And to make sure we didn't forget that, they gave us a haftarah from Zechariah. If you don't know Chagayim Zechariah on the time period in the background, so it's a kid's holiday. But if you know the prophetic background, and that's why we call it the prophet Ustol uh, Hanukkah because there's, there's a very deep relationship between Hanukkah and, and Christmas now where is that? if you look in go back one last source go backwards this is a very academic source called not well this is Wikipedia but it's simple to remember it's not the most academic but it's something true it's just nice easy uh, English it's how Christmas became on Christmas I'm sure you've probably heard this before Saturday was the hottest pagan holiday in the Roman Empire? You heard about the Romans. They were pagan? And their holiday, it's in their sources, source A. Saturday uh, was a big one, it was the third pouring. People got drunk, they sang in the streets, there was lawlessness, there were no laws at that time. I mean, laws were... You could, you could damage property, you couldn't be charged for that. That's part A. And uh, this guy wrote about uh, all the things that happened, you can read later on your own. And then, when the Roman Empire, the pagan empire, turned from, remember Constantine? He converted everybody? 
So you can convert the whole empire, but people are people and culture is culture. They couldn't stop Saturnalia. So what did they do? They gave it religious meaning, and they decided that the last day of Saturnalia, which was December 25th, now became um, um, Jesus' birthday. And they switched the celebration. But the real, if you know, they bring down later on, the firm Puritans, remember at the beginning in America, mm-hmm. who knew their history and background, they forbid celebrating Christmas. There's that look in D. Uh, D. Um, there was nothing Christian about it. And to do that, they made the members that he was born on the 25th. Now, in parentheses afterwards, because of his own pagan origin, Christmas was banned by the Puritans in illegal in Massachusetts from 1659 to 1681. Thank you. The website shows you that it was a winter solstice, it was a pagan holiday. They got religious meaning in the Christian world. In Judaism, it was always an important day. It's a day of meaning. And again, how do you celebrate the winter solstice? As a time of reflection, a time of hope. And it's something that guides you through your history. Remember you have goals. Remember you have long-term vision. But when you pray for the return for, for redemption, to know what the purpose of redemption is. The Hanukkah has kept us going. And nowadays it should be more meaningful because now we've returned to sovereignty and prosperity. And our leaders, hopefully, and ourselves, should definitely study you know, when you light the candles there's a lot to think about about what to do now that we've blessed with return what do we do with it how do we come take that and use it to become a light to other nations that's something that's maybe gets the challenge of the next generation and thank you very much and hopefully you have a happy time